You are listening to episode 23 of the Lewis and Kyle Show with Chris Spaggs. And so it wasn't anything I did. It wasn't anything I planned for. But all of a sudden, like, growth tripled overnight, basically, just just from that. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I bring on interesting people doing interesting things. Lewis, who do we have on the show today? Hey, Kyle. Our interesting person doing interesting things in this episode, as you put it, is Chris Spaggs. Chris is an entrepreneur and software engineer building what I thought was a really cool product for Webflow. He's really prominent in the no-code community, which if you haven't heard of it, catch up. It's a cool up-and-coming trend about how you can build really, really complicated and advanced products using really well-built tools, no coding involved. That's where the name comes from. Anyway, Webflow is one of the top products in the no-code space, an amazing tool that helps you build websites. And Chris has built his business, JetBoost.io, around making plugins or add-ons for Webflow to make it even more powerful. We talk with him about how and why he started that business, the trends of no-code in general, as well as some of his personal story and experience as someone who's been in the entrepreneurship space for about the past decade. So it was a really, really beneficial conversation for both of us, and I think you all will really enjoy listening to it. Hey, Chris, thank you so much uh, for coming on with us. It's really nice to meet you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so I uh, found out about your product from a David Perel newsletter talking about lifestyle businesses, and I'm a Webflow user, so it said, you know, this plugin for Webflow, and I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> and I'm kind of personally interested in pursuing the business model of plugin or add-on development as a way to build a lifestyle business with software skills. I just kind of wanted to have a conversation about your experience with it, and then maybe also talk about some of the trends and no-code in general, so... Should be fun. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. So my first question for you is, could you tell us a little bit about like how and when JetBoost first got started? Were you trying to use Webflow to build a website and it lacked features that you wanted? Is Where did it start out? Yeah, it actually started out, so just over a year ago was the first time I'd even learned about Webflow. Uh, a friend of mine, he is a marketer, he's head of growth at Bear Metrics and does not write code at all. He's, he's tried to learn code a few times, but it just wasn't for him. And he started using Webflow and he put together this job board using Webflow, Zapier type form, to these other no-code tools. And in a couple of weekends, he, he built this thing. It looked great. It worked. He launched it. And, you know, all of a sudden he had companies signing up and posting jobs on this on this job board. He was making revenue off of it. And I was like, up until that point, I, I hadn't really been aware of the no-code space. You know, my background is software development. And I started looking into it and I was like, wow, this is like, this is kind of a, a shift in, in the industry, I feel like, you know, of course, like developers are always going to be needed, but here's someone who has never coded in his life is now able to build and launch products uh, without having to find a technical co-founder, without having to hire a developer or hire an agency to build the product for him. So that was my first introduction to Webflow and the way it tied into JetBoost. I, I was on his site one day and I was like, this is really sweet, but I wish I could easily find like, you know, if I'm looking for a director of marketing or a VP position or whatever, like there was no way to search through the list quickly and, and filter it down. So I, I built that for him. I just wrote like a little bit of the JavaScript code for his site. And over time, he started sending me more and more people that wanted the same thing on their sites. Yeah. So yeah, eventually after writing a few of the more of those by hand, I was like, okay, I'm just going to try and see if I can turn this into some type of plugin that anyone could install on their site without having to you know, use this custom JavaScript code that, that I had to write differently for every single person. Yeah, I'll say I started using Webflow first, which just to back up for a second, Webflow is like an alternative to WordPress or Squarespace or Shopify. It's a website builder. 
with a content management system, supports e-commerce, very drag and drop, visually intuitive, very powerful. Uh, and so I wanted to use it because I heard about it from Nat Elias and that he used it to make his website. Uh, and so I was like, well, I have a blog. I want to move it over there. And that was immediately one of the first issues I ran into is that he had a really nice blog page with all the tags and you click on a tag and it only shows you those articles without reloading the page. And I was like, that's really nice. I want to do that. And then I didn't have an intuitive way of doing it. And I started looking at their options and it wasn't there. Uh, and so that's kind of when I came across your product as something that provides that dynamic filtering without having to launch to a separate page for tags and add an extra page load. And it's just extra steps and that's how you lose people. So that's a really neat feature as well. You give a perfect use case, you know, using tags on uh, blog posts or uh, a lot of companies have like resource style sites where, you know, they put together case studies or they have, you know, learning resources for how to use their product. And having all of that content easily searchable, easily filterable has been one of the major use cases for Jetboost. So what were you doing at the time? Were you as a software developer for a company? Were you just working for yourself when you started kind of making these patches and add-ons for your friend informally? Yeah. So uh, like I said earlier, my background is software development. I worked for various companies for over 10 years. I started out in working for some larger consulting companies and then over time kind of transitioned into working uh, for a couple different startups like in the food delivery space and I, I really enjoyed working for startups and eventually wanted to you know start my own company so about a year before i, I began working on JetBoost, i just started doing consulting work on my own uh, so I left my full-time job and just started taking on clients, mostly early stage companies where I could act either as like the, the developer of the MVP or even more uh, in like a strategic role, kind of like the CTO for, for hire for some of these non-technical founders. So at the time when I started working on JetBoost, that's what I was doing. I, I was doing consulting actually part-time and then also working on launching some other kind of products on my own that just didn't have as much traction as, as JetBoost ended up happening. Okay. So let's, let's get back into that for a second. So you make JetBoost for your, or you make dynamic search for your friend. He shares it with a few of his friends. What happens after that? When you say, okay, I'm going to package this and sell it. I'll just make it like a GitHub repo that non-technical people can just plug a, a little script into. And what was that process like? Uh, you're kind of early, I think on the, on the plugin side for, for Webflow kind of this new economy that, that is coming up on the internet, you know, how, how WordPress was a few years ago. What was that process like early on? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It's, I think it might be a lot slower than you would expect. So it was around uh, March, 2019, where I wrote the script for him on his site. And it wasn't until six months later that I actually started building JetBoost. And the reason for that was, like I said, I was working on other projects at the time and it was kind of this slow trickle of like every month, maybe one or two people would reach out to me and say, Hey, I, I heard that you wrote this script and could you, could you do that for my site? So yeah, it was, it was definitely a few months and throughout this time, like I, I started looking into Webflow more. I started toying with this idea of like, is this a product that is even possible to build on their platform right now? Because like you mentioned, it's, it's very early. They don't have an official, you know, app store or, or plug-in marketplace. So it, over the course of these few months, it was kind of just this exploratory phase of, you know, learning more about Webflow because I was still very new to it. 
learning about their API, what the limitations were, what was possible, and then just kind of gauging the, the interest based on the people reaching out to me. Eventually, I, I did put up a, a landing page saying like, you know, here's this plugin tool, here are these things that it's going to do for you. And I found that resonated pretty quickly with the Webflow crowd. Do you pay to drive traffic to it or did you just put it out there on like a forum? Yeah, so it was, that, it was just all organic through mainly through Twitter as well as some of the Webflow communities. And yeah, I, I up until that point, like I've tried sort of the landing page before launch before and, you know, gotten a few email signups, but, but not much. And then this was just, it felt totally different. It was like, you know, every, every day there was like one or two people signing up on the email list. So that really spurred me to figure out, okay, how can I technically build this product even with some of the limitations of, you know, the third party support that, that Webflow currently provides. That's really cool that you're able to, to gauge that early traction from those different forums and know that you had a, had a product that would sell before you even really started to build it. You know, that, that word of mouth is so powerful, but sometimes so hard to do. And like people, people start businesses and, and products and they'll get it all the way to the finish line and they'll be like, where are the customers? But you were able to, to know that, that that customer base was there before you even really built the product, which is something that's unique, I think. To be fair, like that definitely comes from experience of like I've built products that I had no idea if anyone was interested in it. You know, I'd spend three months, six months building a product, launching it, and then crickets. So mm -hmm. with this one, I, I really just, my whole goal was to fail as quickly as possible. Like, you know, I don't want to build this product if people don't want it. So I'm going to go and find that out and not waste my time on the, the software development side of things, which is easy to fall into as a software developer. Yeah. And that's what I really find valuable about a lot of these conversations Cotton, I've had with you and similar like founders of software companies is the like reality versus perception is just so misaligned for all these stories. It's, you know, here you are saying, okay, I've tried to build like similar software companies a bunch of times. I've been a developer for over a decade. I can code and it's like, okay, well, kind of makes sense that eventually something hit and you were prepared for it and you knew how to invest your time. Well, it's not like just people kind of assume the wrong ambition and the wrong like prioritization was there at the start where it's like we brought on the founder of Corsicle, which is like a scheduling tool for students. And he had like no ambition when he created it. It's just like, I built this to help me make my own schedule. A few friends wanted to use it. Yeah. He uh, just didn't want to wake up early. That was exactly. <laughs> and then it grows into something else. It's not like, you know, you think, okay, here's this guy with 400,000 daily users. His ambition was, I must, I want to build a million dollar software company. It's just, no, I just solve my own problem. And that only happens when you kind of start from the the basis of having a skill set and being able to do that. And that's kind of something I'm realizing uh, is frustrating me is I'm not where I want to be technically yet. And I kind of need to develop that skill set so that when I do have an idea that hits me or have a, a pain point that I recognize and have something to do about it, like I'm actually equipped to handle it uh, reasonably quickly. Would you say that the mindset of failure that you said it comes from software development, but is it just from iteration over and over again, or have you cultivated that in some other way? Yeah, I think, I think it ties into software development, you know, just the sort of discipline of trying things out and it's with development, it's so easy to try something. If it doesn't work, delete it, undo it, right. You know, write tests, see until you have something that's working, just iterating over and over. But really business-wise for me, it kind of changed when I, I read this quote. He was a former, I think, CEO of IBM. He said, to increase your success rate, double your failure rate. 
And for whatever reason, that just really stuck with me because, you know, I'm someone who has struggled with like perfectionism and, you know, wanting everything to be exactly right until I launch it or, you know, getting stuck in that trap of like, it's, it's never quite finished. And it just like, all of a sudden it just made sense to me. Like the faster you fail at something, the faster you're going to find out that wasn't what you should have been doing. And it'll get you one step closer to to what you should be doing. I, I like that a lot. So I think that that makes a lot of sense with, and that's a lesson you learned from your previous projects. You know what I mean? It's maybe some of those, you kind of felt the pain of putting way too much time into it with no reception. And you're like, right. okay, I'm going to avoid that this time around. So I want to find out as early as possible, will this work before I put more, more time into it? And I have a friend who uh, is developing something right now and I'm like his alpha tester. And it's kind of like, that's what he wants me to do for him. It's like, find stuff that's broken, tell him like what sucks, what doesn't work. Like, so he doesn't just go out and build like he sent me like the very bare, like I've never alpha, I've beta tested some stuff before, but I've never like alpha tested. Like he just added the release notes thing to the software. So like I can see, and he called it 0.01. So it's like brand new. And he's like, wants to not to add any features until there's already someone like validating it each step. So that makes, that makes a ton of sense. So is it just you right now on this team or do you have others at this point? Yeah, right now it's, it's still just me and one I would say advantage of kind of going this <clears throat> this plug-in model route is that you can you kind of leech off of the the larger companies market their advertising their you know as Webflow grows Jetboost is growing as well and without so much effort from me and it, and it's also very clear what communities and channels I need to be promoting Jetboost in like it's it's the Webflow forums, it's the Webflow Facebook group. That's where I went to solve my problem of of like, how do I do on-page filtering? And it was like answers. I found a couple forums with some JavaScript and I was like, no, nah, I'm not messing with this. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there are also dangers to that, right? Like people, people always warn that you don't want to build your business on top of somebody else's business. Like if you don't want to put all your eggs on in Facebook's basket because if they change their algorithm, which they will, or SEO, they'll change their algorithm and then you'll just be you'll be out of luck. You'll have to completely redesign, remodel your your business plan. How do you how do you think about that and how do you navigate that when you're you know you're doing something successfully and you should be doing it, but how do you, how, I guess how do you hedge long term against the the risks? Uh, yeah, it's a good question and a good point uh, that when you do build on someone else's platform, you give up some control. And, you know, the question I get asked a lot is, what are you going to do once Webflow builds these features? And, you know, I'm not naive to that. Like at some point, everything that Jetboost does, Webflow is probably going to build natively into their platform. Like right now, it's it's really just filling in the gaps of of some of the functionality. But over time, as as I've seen working with some of the people at the Webflow team, I think for me, I, I, I think Jetboost can always stay a little bit ahead of the curve and you know at because webflow is going to continue to expand their platform which is going to continue to open up new opportunities to build on top of new features that they develop and new things that they release so it is like being a an outside small company i'm able to move a little bit more nimbly in in some ways where you know i, I can build a feature for jetboost that supports a really small subset of use cases. And when Webflow goes to build that feature, they have to consider, you know, how is it going to work in in the mm-hmm. in their UI and their designer? How is it going to work for all of their thousands of existing sites? They they just have a lot more to support and build and build around that. So, you know, long long term, 
the the plan for JetBoost is to become an official Webflow plugin or app whenever they do eventually build their app store because they're going to. You know, they've talked about it before and for a platform that like the what they have, it just makes sense. Like, you know, Shopify has an app store, WordPress has all of its, you know, millions of plugins. So JetBoost, part of the the whole play right now is to just build up the brand in, in the Webflow community. And then when there is an opportunity to be a part of the official app store, you know, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's not search and filtering, maybe it's something else, but mm. by that point, JetBoost should have kind of the the trust and the name recognition in the community that people will know when they go to the store. Oh, this is JetBoost. Like this is going to be high quality. This is mm. going to, this is going to be a good product. Yeah. You have, you have a lot of first mover advantage. I think that, you know, actually I didn't know before this that Webflow didn't have an app store. I think that might be on me for for being non-technical and, and not knowing how to how to build websites, but that's huge. That's a that's that's going to be big for you in the future because, like, you know, Spotify. That's a or Shopify. Sorry, <laughs> has a gigantic marketplace. Like, people are making so much money with those plugins, and it is so easy to integrate. And once once the the barrier to entry for JetBoost is reduced that much by having it on an app store right in front of you at the at the touch of your fingertips, I think. I think it could be really good for, for JetBoost. No, so what about no code in general? I don't know how you're positioned in that, in that industry, but that's something that I only recently started. Like, you know, I was familiar with the concept of like well-packaged tools that help you do stuff on the internet without coding, but like the branding of it, I really feel like that's blown up in the past, just even a couple of months. Like, I mean, I don't think this could be really biased by the fact that I was off Twitter for like two years until February. So I just like might've come into a trend and that was the first time I saw it. So that's when I thought that it started but kind of what do you think about that trend long term and like what do you think some of the implications are of this push to like just get everything done with tools do you think that like lead to less development of tools because everyone's just going to go the route of drag and drop tools or kind of what do you think some of the trends are with no code yeah i think it's not because you were off twitter it's, it's definitely a newer trend so last november was the first webflow hosted the first ever no code conference okay and webflow so hosted like- that yeah, Webflow hosted oh, wow. that. They, I didn't know that. They, yeah, they put it all together. Yeah, I, I had just started JetBoost two months earlier, and I was kind of on the fence of like, should I go? Should I not go? And I ended up going. I was really glad I did because, you know, I got to meet some awesome people. Ben of, of MakerPad, he's been mm-hmm. a huge supporter of JetBoost and a bunch of people in the Webflow community. And it, what was great about it is it wasn't a Webflow conference. It was a no-code conference. So they invited you know, Adalo and uh, Glide and all these other no-code tools. Can you explain um, what those tools are as well as MakerPad? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm so deep in this space that sometimes I forget. Yeah, so MakerPad is kind of the central hub for learning about no-code tools. So if you're, if you're new to the no-code space, if you're interested in diving deeper into it, highly recommend checking out MakerPad there's just there's a ton of free tutorials there there's a community there's 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 just so there's a showcase so you can see what other people have built there's so much you can find there so that's number one and then dalo and glide those are both these are the kind of no code builders both of those are focused more on building mobile apps so yeah there's there's a number of different tools in the space they kind of all have carved out their own target, whether it's web apps, whether it's websites, mobile apps, there's, there's not really like one tool to, to rule them all. So 
it's again maker pads very good for finding the exact tool that you need to accomplish what you're trying to do well do you think you get a disproportionate advantage by having technical knowledge in the no code world because then you can or because you can like add on to the no code tools like webflow is amazing but if you want to add one filter you're out of luck unless you know javascript so Mm -hmm. do you think that gives you like an increased advantage to learn CS and learn web programming because then you can add on to these tools or how does that work? Cause I think it's a really interesting kind of like people are like, you don't need to code because you can do this, but if you know how to code, you can like leverage what already exists and like take everything to the next level. Yeah. It's definitely an advantage right now, but I think that it will decrease over time as the tools become more powerful, become more flexible. Right now, a lot of them, they do have ways to extend them mainly because they just, they're newer. They, they haven't built everything themselves yet. And, and kind of on the flip side of it, I, I'm starting to see a lot of stories now about people who got started with no code. Maybe they even tried to learn code before, but as they started using these no code tools more and more, you're, you're kind of visually doing de- software development. You have to think about these concepts of, you know, if you're working with like a CMS, you have to think about how, how does your, how do you model your data? Yeah. Uh, you know, what properties do you want to display on the page and how, how does it all fit together? And, uh, you know, so I'm seeing more and more now that some people who've started with no code tools, they're starting to learn a little bit of JavaScript. They're starting to learn a little bit of CSS. And so I think, yeah, right now, if you do know some code, it is a benefit. And even, even as, I think a lot of software developers right now are kind of discrediting the the no code movement, I would say. And for me, like I would much rather build a website in Webflow, even though I could, I could handwrite the HTML, the CSS, the JavaScript, like it's so much faster and it's a better experience to build in Webflow that I would, I would much rather do that. That's what I've been using for every project I've taken on in the past couple months is Webflow. So yeah just for that same reason. And then it's super, and then you can add in custom stuff whenever you want to, because you can do it custom embed. So if you want to sprinkle in like some added magic, that's just beyond what they let you do, they let you. So, but for all all the templated stuff, it's just, it's like abstracted the majority of the basic work. So you think over time, the, the advantage that you get from being a software developer will decrease because all the problems that people that, that, don't code or can't code will be faced with th- through the the no code movement like as i someone who doesn't know how to code i'm trying to build on on webflow people will add more and more features to where it's less and less of an advantage to to be able to build those yeah yeah i think so it to me it has parallels to you know back in the day if you wanted to run your own website or build a build a web application you had to go and install your own server somewhere and you had to know, you know, all these Linux commands to have things up and running and have database backups. And over time people started, you know, AWS was built and other cloud servers were created and people started moving their web applications over there. And all of a sudden like this other software is powerful enough where it's managing those things just as well as if you were doing all of the, the, server management yourself. So yeah, I think, I think it's, it's kind of similar to that where as things get abstracted away, as things get more powerful. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting, but I think like 
knowing code is kind of such a general term. It's like, well, you just learn different codes. So it's now that you don't have to learn server administration, that's when you take on like, okay, I guess, you know, the things that the computers aren't doing for us yet is like ML or like data science. So it's like exactly move to a new area in software development in like the hard technical space. Uh, And I mean, that's just going back 50, 60 years. That's like the overarching trend of like computer science as a discipline. I feel like it's just abstracting layer upon layer upon layer but where software development just graduates to being like higher, a higher order of software development. So like, you know, you're not writing assembly, you're not writing machine code, you're not writing C, you're writing Python, which gets converted into C. So it's like CS, some CS departments are starting out with Python, which like people 40 years ago, when you call that programming, they would just call that like, <laughs> right. You're just, it just does so much for you. And that's just because we're advancing the layers you can do with each, with each step, which is pretty, which is pretty cool. And that's how, you know, we see that exponential development of the capacity for what individuals can accomplish, uh, which is cool. And what interests me in the field in general. Yeah, I think, you know, one great example that Vlad, the CEO of Webflow has given before is software developers, like you don't want to be given a task where you're taking a Photoshop file and writing the HTML for it, like basically translating the static image into HTML. Like I've had to do that at companies before. And it's, to be frank, like it's like very boring work to do as a software developer. Like you want to be working on creative problems, like some of the ones you mentioned, like machine learning and, you know, data analysis. And so it's, it's not that no code is going to result in less software development. It's that, like you said, now we get to work on more interesting problems. Yeah. And to me, that's really exciting. I agree. I agree completely. That's one thing I want to kind of learn more about is like the integration software, just like even enabling further backend integration type stuff and getting better automating some of the work I'm doing. Yeah. That's, that's my next project potentially. Nice. And, yeah. and one thing I will say, cause you mentioned earlier about, you know, feeling like your, your technical skills weren't where you wanted them to be. Part of it is it, it just takes time. I quit my job when I was 24 and I thought, okay, like I'm going to build a startup and you know, it's in, when I look back on it now, like I, I totally failed because part of the reason was I just wasn't technically strong enough yet. I, too I long really, to solve problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't have the breadth of experience of working at different companies, working with different, you know, under different leadership and, and working on different web frameworks, everything. So you know, that's, and that's not to say people haven't been successful at 24, but for me, like it just, it took longer to build up that experience and, and build up that technical knowledge and, and business knowledge as well. Do you think you learned more from starting that startup when you were 24 or I don't know the time frame, but do you think that you learned more in that time frame than you would have if you would have stayed with the company or, or gone to it into a different career? Or do you think you, you, you learn more on your own? Yeah. So Every time I've, there's kind of two things. There's sort of two paths to learning. There's one, which is, you know, reading, reading like uh, guides, startup material, you know, Paul Graham essays or just different people who, who have done it before. And then there's just like going and doing it on your own. Like, I, I think you kind of need both of those. For me, I sort of spent too long in the like reading, like business Third books. One. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And once I started actually going out and like trying these things and failing, like to me, that's when my learning really increased. I think that's what a lot of those, those books and and reading says too, you know, it's like, 
go do it. It's it's funny because it's it's easier to say and it's easy to read, but like it's harder to actually put that into action. Like it's harder to stumble around and not know what you're doing and you know, it's it's much easier to go just like I'm going to go buy a book and I'm going to read it from page 1 to the end of the page to the end of the book and like maybe I'll have learned something by the end. Like but it but it feels like you're accomplishing something when you do that versus if you're you know you start a, a new website and nobody's coming to it like you're like okay well now how do i get traffic how do i get some users to this like you have to stumble around and figure that out and it's not it's not as linear as just reading a book or watching a youtube video uh, so there's not as much of an immediate there's no indicator of progress really yeah exactly but some of the most important learning comes from doing that I think that's a really interesting characterization of like that kind of paradox because Kyle and I obviously fallen into similar traps before, like talking about uh, reading, like we spent years reading different books and it takes a long time to actually start taking action. And then when I start taking action, it's like, you know, are we like, it's just tempting to just retreat back into, okay, well, we're not making progress. Let's go read another book. Let's go spend another couple months studying this. And then we'll get back to like the drawing board and actually doing and I think characterizing it in terms of like reward and senses of progress makes a lot of sense for like why that trap is so like so problematic and happens so much. And what do you think is kind of like a good or what's worked for you as like a way out of that or is it just an awareness that that's what happens or how do you like work in senses of progress and like, no, this is and reassure yourself that what you're doing is moving you in the right direction without those like inbuilt gamified, almost like <laughs> measures of moving forward. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, in awareness. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to discount reading books or learning from others because that all helps give you like a foundation to work off of. Like, I know some of the, the things that I've done with JetBoost have been, I've, I've taken actions that I've learned directly from, you know, like uh, Amy Hoy is a great example. She's, she's in like the, kind of the bootstrap founder community and she's written a lot of great things. And like, I, I've, I've taken stuff that she's written and I've applied that now. And like, that's the big difference. If you're just, if you're just reading a bunch of stuff and not actually applying it, then uh, you're not going to get as much benefit from it, but that's not to say you can't apply it years later. So that's why I think it is important to still have that foundation. But the awareness piece comes in when you're realizing like, like exactly what you just said, like, Oh, we hit this, we hit this stopping point or we hit this plateau, you know, now let's go back and, kind of go back to our comfort of maybe we just haven't learned enough yet. Like maybe we need to, to read, you know, some other book. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> kind of lost the track of the year. What was your question there? Well, kind of like, what's that remedy for not saying, yeah. okay, well I've hit a roadblock. I'm going to go back to my comfort trap of another entrepreneurship book. Uh, yeah. So what's like, how do you avoid that trap or like say, yeah, okay, I think yeah. the, the, the remedy is, is talking to people and, and focusing on helping other people and, and what it is that like, so if you hit a roadblock of, you know, say, you know, you hit a roadblock of like not enough people or no one's listening to our podcast or, yeah. you know, listeners have declined. Like you have to go out and talk to people who do listen to podcasts. Like, Hey, what do you like about this? Like, why do you, why do you listen to our podcast? Mm -hmm. What is interesting about this to you? And then you're going to learn things from that that helps you double down on, things that people like, things that are working. You know, maybe you find out that, hey, your last few episodes have been just, you know, too long for me. I prefer the ones that are 
only, you know, 45 minutes versus mm-hmm. two hours or whatever. I, I think it's, it's all about, you know, not, it's all about finding the truth. Like, yeah, the feedback, the iteration cycles, all those things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And if you go and do that, instead of saying like, okay, well, you know, there must be something wrong with our podcast. So now let's go watch a bunch of YouTube videos of these like famous podcasters or whatever, yeah. who are teaching people how to podcast. Like that's not going to get you as much as far as if you go and talk to your listeners and find out what it is that they really want and, and how they're benefiting from the podcast. That makes, even, that makes a lot of sense. How are you going to say it? Or even worse, and you can quit podcasting or, you know, that's one yeah. of my favorite ways of looking at kind of what we're talking about. It's like, you only really fail when you quit doing what you're doing, you know, like you, you can shut down a business and still not quit. You know, it's just, it's all about continuing to, to take those steps. And I, I think whether it might be a book, it might be listening to something that you, that you need to do um, yeah. in order to get to the next step. And I think a lot of the times that next step is really ambiguous and, and you don't, you don't know where it's going to come from, and you, but you just have to keep going. But that's just kind of, <laughs> that's some motivation. No, it's, it's very true. There's another podcast I listen to. It's called Startups for the Rest of Us. This guy, Rob Walling, is the host. And he's been, he's been doing startups for over 20 years now. And he said, like, his, I guess, superpower, you would call it, is he just keeps going. Like, it's just slow, steady progress. And you just keep moving forward. And, you know, for me, I, I've, I've almost quit JetBoost, you know, I don't know how many times. I, I launched it in September and... By the end of that year, there were only five customers. So five customers in the first three months. And I thought like, you know, maybe this, maybe this isn't as uh, big of a problem as I thought it was, you know, people seem to be interested in it, but maybe they're just looking for a free solution. They don't want something that's paid, but I kept going, gave it a little bit longer and, you know, started to see things pick up and there's been other points along the way where I started to feel like, eh, maybe this is just, you know, maybe I'm not on the right path. Maybe it's not worth it anymore. And every time I think that I, I just, you know, sit with that for a while and then get through it and keep going and keep improving the product, keep improving the, the marketing and the positioning. And over time, things continue to progress. So how many inflection points do you think you've had along that road? I know that one recently is probably that, that letter from, from Dave Perel, uh, David Perel at each of those. What is it, what has it been, what has it kind of been like for you to, to hit those? I think it's, it's all about setting yourself up to hit those points because you never know when they're going to come. So you're, you're totally right when you say like that there has been a number of, of different inflection points along the way and each time it's been you know just putting in putting in the hard work and being prepared and and then just luck happens like in in march march was the biggest inflection point for JetBoost so far you know and we're talking about this company less than a year old as far as growth because some Popular people in the Webflow community built a site that used JetBoost, and then they made it clonable for anyone who wanted to build their own version of this site. And it was kind of a local uh, restaurant aggregator, so everyone was building their own version for their own city. Like a template for yeah, build this, just copy this and make your own restaurant website really nice. 
yeah and it, okay. it just kind of took off people people really liked it and it just so happened that they used JetBoost to do the search and do the filtering and so it wasn't anything i did it wasn't anything i planned for but all of a sudden like growth tripled overnight basically <laughs> just just from that yeah and you know so the the david perel article is a great example where you know him and i hadn't previously spoken and i don't even know how he found <laughs> jet boost but he happened to just mention it and yeah that's that's how you found me that's how others have found me too that, that have mentioned that so yeah yeah i like that earlier in this conversation you'd said something and, and lewis wrote down luck is where preparedness meets opportunity just as an aphorism for us to to look back on and i think that what you just said really, really comes back to that because, you know, you never know what lies around the corner. And as long as you're, you know, as long as you're standing in the right spot, uh, that's when you're able to, to take advantage of, of those opportunities. It's, it's, it's really not luck because you have to put yourself there, uh, even though it is beyond your control, whether or not David Perel sees it and puts it in his, in his newsletter or whether or not these people that are making this uh, restaurant aggregator put put uh jet boost as their filter but but you had been building the product and you'd been doing all these things along the way that put you in the position to benefit from these uh random events exactly yeah and, then, and you wouldn't have benefited from them had you not when all the traffic came had your infrastructure built and had like a compelling product that worked well and was intuitive and easy to set up for i mean the people using this restaurant website probably came to webflow because like I mean, this is just the no code community in general. They wanted drag and drop, click here, click here, done. And like, had your product not worked according to the same expectations, you know, it's like you would have all these people to come. No, this sucks. This is too hard for me. Not used it. But the way I had actually written that down in the first place was kind of a reminder to myself about, and this is something we've kind of touched on a couple of times at this point, but how it's your success with JetBoost so far is really true to the fact that like, you started development already as a seasoned programmer already having like also been experienced with software marketing launch, like launch cycles and all of those things. And it's like, for me, the expectation of, you know, I'm not at that preparedness point yet. It's not like I don't have that preparedness. So like I have an idea I'm prepared to like make it happen really quickly and know all of the backend marketing to do and all the tools to use to like get that ready. And that's kind of like a motivator for me to like, okay, well, until that opportunity comes where I have the idea, let's work on the preparedness piece. Like, okay, let's, in the meantime, and that's kind of what Kyle and I want to do this podcast as well. It's like, what, like David Perel talks about, it's an audience first building where mm -hmm. you don't know what you're going to make, but you start building a following about certain topics and then it's easier to launch anything because you have like a fan base. So that's preparedness as well for when you have the opportunity of an idea. Then the other half of that preparedness uh, is actually having the ability to make that, which is kind of the motivation for it finishing my CS degree and taking those last set of classes and all that good stuff. Definitely. And, and even just, you know, putting together this podcast and everything that you guys are doing, you know, one, you're, you're building that audience, but two, you're also just, you're, you're learning to, to ship things, to be out there and to be trying things. And, you know, it's funny, a few years ago, I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally start a blog. And, you know, so I did that, I started writing and like, Posting that very first blog post, my blog that basically nobody was going to read was still like terrifying. Like I had never put my writing out into the world. And, you know, after you do it once and then you do it again, like I'm sure over time, you guys probably feel like this podcast has improved, that you've gotten better at it. And, 
you know, that's, that's all part of the, the foundation. So it's, it's, it's not, yes, building the audience is great, but also just getting comfortable with, you know, building, building anything is, is a huge, huge advantage that I think you guys are setting yourself up really well. Yeah. That's been my biggest piece of advice to any of my friends that have come to me. Like, I want to make a podcast. I want to get on YouTube. I want to write. I'm like, okay, we'll publish something. Just like get it out there and get used to like, it doesn't even have to be perfect. Put on medium. Don't put up your own website yet. Just like put words zero on medium with your name. Or like if they're super, super cautious, like publish it under a pseudonym on medium, like no one's yeah. going to read it. It's going to get zero right. views. Uh, you're going to get freaked out about it. I, I can completely relate to your story of when I put my first blog post on like a WordPress site that didn't, wasn't even a full domain yet. It's like some blah, 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 wordpress.com. It's like not even a real website, zero chance to show up under any search term. Even if they put the entire text of the article into Google, it still wouldn't come up. Like there's, it's impossible for anyone to find it. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to put this out there. So someone's going to find anything I've done. And it's like, you have, right. to get, you have to get over that. And it's, you know, make five podcast episodes before you publish your first one or publish your first one, but don't post anything until you about it until you've made 10. And it's like, you have to do those kind of things to just get used to it. And it, go, it, it comes pretty quickly, at least for me. Like, you know, you're, you don't sound as bad as you think. You have to get over the sound of your own voice and the tone of your own writing. And if people yeah. like it, they like it. And if they don't change it and like, we're not change it, but like get some feedback and iterate around it. So that's definitely great advice. And I think that's the same for probably like the software cycle where, you know, is my software going to break or people going to like it? Is it going to work? And then it's like, well, the only way you do that is by starting to get people to use software that you write. So, yeah. And, you know, so when I first launched JetBoost and, and started getting the early traffic, like it's, it was so hard not to think about, you know, here's, you know, a couple hundred people coming to the site and, you know, I, I can list off 20 things that I wish were better about the product right now, but just aren't yet. And for me, at least at first, I, I sort of had this sense of, well, you know, I've, I've lost out on this opportunity of, you know, a few hundred people coming to the site, but you quickly learn like the world's a really big place and there's a lot of people out there. And just because you missed out, uh, you know, on a few in the early days, like there's, there's just so much opportunity out there and there's, there's, you just keep improving and, and more and more people are going to notice and discover you. Yeah. Not to make this whole conversation about David Perel, but a- another idea he, he shares is like, uh, he's put this in a couple tweets and a couple newsletters, like just like the internet is see, like, think that the internet is bigger than you think it is. And then think that it's bigger than you think it is. And then think that's bigger than you think it is. And then just then it's still bigger than you think it is. It's a whole yeah. bigger than you can imagine. But I think uh, this is kind of philosophical. Well, not really, but just like traveling and, and going from where you live to another city and then seeing, a whole bunch of people that are just living their lives in a different place with different names and different, you know, it's like you can only know so many people and uh, the maximum amount of people that you could ever meet or impact is such a small fraction of the people that exist in the earth that like I have iPhones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can just keep like, yeah, everything's out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think no, that's I totally a really good idea to keep in mind. Like, I think that's something I should keep in mind too for like building anything. It's yeah. So I lost these 300 people, but like literally millions of people are searching for how do I build a website every single day. And like, that's right. just, you lost like probably like an immeasurably small subset of like the potential. Like, And then, and then a thousand true fans, which I'm sure you've heard of is, is like, uh, you know, it's something that Tim Ferriss has been kind of evangelizing over the last 
I don't know, 15 years. But the idea is that like, if you can find a thousand people out of that huge, out of, you know, what I just kind of painted is this gigantic world with an unlimited number of opportunities and people. If you can corner a thousand of them into, you know, I guess, believing you or liking your product or liking your podcast, then you can leverage that into a life that you wouldn't have imagined. And I'm sure, you know, it's the same for software. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, uh, that's another trap that founders can fall into trying to build something for everyone. Uh, if you build something for everyone, you're going to end up building something for no one. But like what you're saying with the thousand true fans, you know, you, you just need that thousand people that, that really, you really resonate with because you're not going to resonate with everyone. And that's, that's the great thing. Like, you know, maybe I read Tim Ferriss and he really resonates with me, but that doesn't mean he's the only one that can write this type of book. Like there might be, you know, maybe, you know, my neighbor just is like, I can't stand Tim Ferriss, can't stand his writing style. Like, but there's someone else for him. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's being, being opinionated or being, being like, yourself and your, and your, mm-hmm. you know, having your own personality, your life experiences shine through to me is, is really the way to, that's the only way to really resonate with other people. Yeah. I think the internet really lets you be polarizing and get, and like actually benefit from it because I mean, I first, the first articles I ever really started publishing were about productivity. It's like, I'd send them to my friends and some of them would be like, Lewis, this is boring. I'm like, well, that's because you're not interested in productivity. Like I don't, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't bother me that you don't like this because I didn't write it to appeal to you. You know what right. I mean? So it's like, like you have to kind of get out of that, like get out of that circle. Like one thing Kyle and I noticed with the first, like our most popular episode of this podcast so far by far has been one we did with a high school teacher of mine. Uh, and that's because everyone who follows us on Instagram or 50% of those followers are people I know from high school. So it's like, is that mean that like, that's the content we should be making? I don't think so. It just means like that because our audience just happens to be people I know mostly at this point. And so like, that's who gets the listener. Whereas we put something out with like a really like someone super on brand for us, like an angel investor in tech companies and he's done all this mm-hmm. cool stuff. And it's like, we're just not in front of the people who are interested in that. Like those people just aren't, we haven't got to them, but that doesn't mean like we should change based off of that. And I think that's kind of like a really interesting uh, thing to observe as well. But at, at this point, Khan, I want to jump to kind of what we refer to as like the bonus section, some more rapid fire questions before we wrap everything up. Uh, sure. So my question to the first question to you is what advice would you give to like an entrepreneurially minded college student about to graduate? You know, I can only give advice from my personal history and going in and working for a company was really beneficial. You know, I think, I think sort of the tempting advice to give is like, well, just go and, you know, and try and build your own company and, and make it work. But for me, going and working for a company, working on a software development team helped build some of those disciplines, helped expose me to best practices as far as software development processes, learning from people on the business side, you know, some of the, the accounting metrics or, or how, to deal, how to do consulting engagements or consulting deals. I had so many people along the way that I, I learned from and a network that I was able to build up a lot of that came through, you know, actually working at a full-time job for a few years, which, you know, is, I, I would recommend that. How do you filter 
because I've heard similar advice and agree in a lot of ways that there's main benefits to that. How do you filter like a good company for, for that environment? Like you want to be in that somewhere you don't get, you know, if you're get a software development job at like a massive company, you're probably just going to code and like not actually see the business side of things and not like get those benefits of just kind of proximity to other, other ideas. Like how do you filter a company for that? Like what attributes would you say are important to look for? Yeah, I think it's finding a company that's at the right sweet spot of size because there's kind of, there's two separate problems. There's the one that you mentioned, which is you join this really large company and you know, you're given a very specific role and they're like, we want you to write unit tests. We'll see you in a year. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I have seen sort of the, the flip side and it's probably still preferable, but if you join, you know, maybe you're the, the second engineering hire at a really, you know, five person startup. I think when you're just straight out of school, the, the disadvantage of that is it's harder to have someone mentoring you. Like you're kind of just like thrown in there, thrown into the fire. And it's like, here you go. Like we're going to, there's, there's not much process. There's, there's not much guidance and we just want you to figure it out. And for the right person that can be, that can be good. But I've seen it happen before where someone just out of college is, is not really set up for success in that environment. Yeah. I think it's like you were saying, very individual based, you know, entrepreneurial is such a, a big term that like, it's just different for everyone. But my next question is one that I'm going to steal from Tim Ferriss. And that's what books have you gifted the most or what three books or two books have impacted your life the most? That is a good question. The, the first one that comes to mind to me is the, the magic of thinking big. For me, this was a, sorry. Is that Demandis, right? It's like a classic title. It's like from the 50s or 60s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm horrible with remembering no. authors. Tim <laughs> Ferriss himself actually recommends that a lot. He says he like keeps it on his like... Uh, oh, no way. He, yeah. He, I, he, it was an episode with him and like Mr. Money Mustache on the Tim Ferriss show. And they were talk, talking about that book. It's David J. Schwartz. It's like old and like apparently okay. like really, I don't want to say out, like kind of like outdated like language about like society not like the advice is bad, but it's like, it gives examples. It's like, you have this big macho man and he's doing this and that. And it's kind of like very <laughs> 1950s writing. It's just antiquated. But what does that mean to yeah. you? What, what does that book mean to you? Yeah. Well, that's funny. I discovered that book from Mr. Money Mustache blog. Oh, there ago. you go. Spot, spot <laughs> so, on. <laughs> yeah. So he, he must be the one that's, uh, that's really promoting that. But to me, it was, again, it was all about, I, I struggled with this, with the mindset of like putting things out there and, and taking action and shipping things. And that book for me was like, it, it has some really good examples of how, if you, I mean, it kind of boils down to, if you believe something's not going to happen, then it's probably not going to happen. But if you just shift your mind and you're willing to be open and you're willing to take chances and you know, you're willing to think big, then it's, it, it's actually like, you become more comfortable with it. And I don't know, for some reason, the book the, that the examples in the book, like really, really resonated with me. That's great. I think it's i uh, I've heard a lot of great things about that for a lot of people. Like it does the same thing. It kind of expands your self-conception of what's possible for you to do and what you have to think to be positioned to benefit from that. Yeah. The other book I would recommend is mastery by George Leonard. And in this book, he, he talks about how to achieve mastery and there's kind of three 
there's three different, I would say, personality types that can prevent you from, from learning mastery of a, of a skill, of a discipline. He talks about the, the dabbler, the hacker, and the obsessive. And they kind of all have their flaws of like, so for me, I, I resonate mostly with the dabbler, which is someone who really loves to start new things, like really enjoys learning, you know, the new, like if you're starting a new sport, like getting the new equipment and discovering these new routines. But then as soon as something starts to get a little bit difficult, like when you hit kind of that plateau point of now you're not improving so quickly, you know, as someone who feels more of like this dabbler personality, you, you have to learn to, to enjoy that process and continue that discipline. Yeah, I completely can relate to that. Kind of how Kyle and I characterize it is I'm a really good advanced beginner, but it's like pounding through from that advanced beginner to intermediate. If it's like the learning curve is like exponential, it's like I can reach that advanced beginner stage faster than most people in anything, but then I lose interest or like to reach that next level from advanced beginner to intermediate advanced, that's when like you actually have to apply consistency and discipline. But that's also where the rewards come from being one standard deviation away from everyone else in that skill to like actually being world-class at it or good enough for it to provide you some like real advantage. Yeah, that's, that's very true. So I like that. Well, last question for you this is kind of flipping the script on your product. Do you have any no code tools that are a big part of your workflow on the website itself that you use? Well, definitely Webflow. The, the website mm-hmm. is, is built in Webflow. That's important. Uh, that's a, that's a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't do it without that. Also use, I use a tool called Parabola quite a bit. I've not heard of that. Um, so Parabola is really good for transforming data, whether it's coming from an API, from a Google sheet, from, for me, for my case, a lot of times the Webflow CMS, they have this really great UI for basically working with larger amounts of, of data and moving it from one system to another while performing certain transforms on it or whatever it is that you need to do. So Parabola is great. I've used Zapier in the past to more quickly build automations rather than just like handwriting the code. So triggering automated emails is a, is a great use case for Zapier. I think what other tools have used another good one. So it's a little bit more code heavy, but it's called retool. And it's for building internal like admin dashboards. It's it's really great for that. So yeah, a few handful of things. There you go. I'm gonna have to check out Parabola because working with data is not a strong suit of mine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or something I necessarily enjoy. So if that <laughs> simplifies that for me, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you uh, doing this conversation with us. I think I learned a lot about the business model in general of kind of plug-in development versus trying to start something off the ground and the benefits of drawbacks of doing that, as well as kind of some of the insight into the process. And I think we're going to end up titling this based on that, you know, luck is one preparedness meets opportunity, because I think that really characterizes the story you told us so well. So thank you so much for, for sharing all this with us and really wish you the best luck with your product. I'm probably going to have to work into a few of our sites for some added uh, features. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to that interview with Chris Baggs. I thought it went really, really well. You know, it was really interesting to, to hear his mindset on entrepreneurship, his, the, way, the way he moves forward through problems and the way he looks at, at luck and, and the inflection points that he's hit in his businesses. 
Yeah, I completely agree, Kyle. I think, you know, the lesson we repeated over and over again is that luck is one preparedness meets opportunity. And that's kind of serendipitous for how this interview came about. I signed up for his product because I found it in a newsletter. And then I saw that, you know, he says he replies to every email. So I said, you know what, why not see if this guy wants to go on my podcast? He's built something that's really cool. And we were prepared for that opportunity because we've built this podcast and we have the infrastructure and the microphones and the website. So let's just, the opportunity came around to get this guy's attention and we went for it. So I think that's a really, really powerful lesson. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, the best way for you to do that is by recommending the show to a friend or by leaving a rating or review on iTunes. If you want to keep up with updates, make sure you hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this episode. And you can also find us on social media by searching for The Lewis and Kyle Show on all major platforms. Thank you so, so much for listening. We really, really appreciate it. Way too many double words right there, but that's quite all right. Uh, we'll see you in a couple of days or weeks with the next episode. Probably less than a week, though. Hopefully. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye.